which is the church of the living God. And uh, we studied last week about the mystery that was made known, a powerful, powerful mystery in Jesus Christ of all the power that we had, exceeding abundantly above all that we're able to ask or think that's given to us through Jesus Christ that works in our inner man. So all of these riches that we have and blessings that in scriptural background to the blessings that we enjoy, in chapter 4, it switches and begins to tell us what we ought to do because of what we have received. What response should there be to us having received God's blessings? Amen. I'm going to allow you to be seated because we're going to uh, go through verse by verse in the Word of God uh, tonight. But uh, as, as I just completed mentioning to you, the first three chapters are chapters of doctrine. I want everybody to say that word, doctrine. What does doctrine mean? Can I, can I get a, somebody that would tell me what the meaning of doctrine is? What, is, what would you say doctrine is, Brother Chris? Teaching? Teaching? Okay, the concept of Christianity or what God wants us to be, teaching, uh, these are correct. Doctrine is solid, foundational, scriptural understanding of who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. This is what doctrine is. And so the first three chapters have been a chapter of establishing doctrine, biblical basis for why uh, we should live the way that we should live. And the second three chapters are going to focus, change, shift in focus to our duty. Everybody say duty. And uh, so doctrine is the reason why we do what we should do. The scriptural foundation is the why. And uh, uh, what we're going to be talking about in terms of duty is the what we are supposed to do. So the first three chapters deal with our riches in Christ, and the last three chapters Explain our responsibilities because of our riches. First three chapters, you have received this from God. The next three chapters, because of that, here is what your responsibility is in God. Here's what you should do because of what the Lord has given to you. First comes the doctrine, then comes the duty. And this goes into what we preached on a couple of weeks ago about family lines. In order for a, a, a parent to raise a child, that has a moral background, a backbone in making decisions, there has to not only be the duty that's explained, but the doctrine behind the duty, the teaching as to why. And so in this particular passage, this uh, chapter, this book, if you would, re- written to the church in Ephesus, the first three chapters explain the why, and the last three chapters explain the what to do because of the why. Does everybody get that? Because God has blessed you, because he has brought you out of the grave, because he has enriched you with spiritual blessings and given you power, what should we do as a result of that? And so we'll notice uh, in the last half of the book, especially even in the first verse, um, let's read the first verse. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beseech you that ye walk. Everybody say walk. Walk. Worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And we'll notice that word walk shows up again in verse 17, chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 5, verse uh, 15. The idea is because of what Jesus has done for us, there should be a concurrent 
change in our walk, our walk or our lifestyle. So it will focus, the, the last half of the book will focus on our walk. And the key idea in the first three chapters is our wealth. Now, because of our wealth, how should we walk? And uh, he admonishes us, we'll look at how he admonishes us tonight to walk in unity. And then next week, how he talks about us walking in purity. And then later in harmony and finally in victory in chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. So these walks are very important. Now, just for your understand, just so you know where we're going tonight, we're not going to go through the entire chapter 4. We're going to go chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And that's the first half of the book, and it focuses on us walking in unity. Everybody say unity. And next week, we'll finish the rest of chapter 4, which is walking in purity. Walking in purity and in holiness. So in verse 1, it says, I therefore beseech you. Now, first of all, the word therefore. What does that mean? I therefore, as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That word therefore is connecting us to everything he just said. Do you understand? The word therefore is connecting us. So, for instance, if I just walked up to you and said, therefore, you need to come to church. That would you understand? But if I said, coming to church will help strengthen you and nourish you. You'll be encouraged by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, you should come to church. Now it makes sense, right? So the word therefore is saying the first three chapters, everything I just explained to you is the logic behind why you should walk according to the vocation and worthy of the vocation which you were called. So the first three chapters, what we talked about our last Bible studies is the reason behind. Therefore, you should walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And the second word that we focused on therefore, but the second word to look at is the word beseech. I beseech. But before we get into beseech, in order to understand Bible doctrine and uh, uh, when, you, when, when you are able to better understand Bible doctrine, it is easier to understand biblical duties. Why should I do this? Why should I live like this? Why should I make these types of decisions? If you don't understand Bible doctrine, it's hard to understand Bible duty. If you don't understand the foundation or the why behind it, then it's hard to understand the expectations. And there are people in the world today, especially in our postmodern culture, that rejects authorities that says, don't talk to me about doctrine. Doctrine is not important. Just let me live my Christian life. If somebody says, I'm not interested in doctrine. I just want to live my Christian life. They are revealing their ignorance as to the way the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. How does the Holy Ghost work in my life? The Holy Ghost just doesn't randomly work in my life. But first of all, as the doctrine is established, then the duties or the Christian lifestyle begins to emerge. It's not just that I come to the altar and have a supernatural experience and shake and quake under the power of God, and then all of a sudden emerges this perfect lifestyle. We know that the Holy Spirit is a part of the process, but duty or lifestyle emerges out of an understanding of doctrine or the Word of God. Some people say it makes no difference what you believe just so long as you live right. And, and uh, 
This is a similar confession of ignorance. It does make a difference what you believe because what you believe determines how you behave. All right? Your conduct or your actions is based on what you believe. You prove that. Why would somebody uh, ever break the law? The young person goes out and breaks the law, steals something from a store. It is, they do that because they believe they're going to get away with it. If they knew they were going to caught, get caught, they probably wouldn't do it. But their behavior is based on their belief. And so the same is true with us. We can't just say, well, I'm just going to live for God. I don't want to hear the Bible teaching. I don't want to hear doctrine. Don't tell me what the Bible says. I'll just let God lead my life. That's foolishness. Because lifestyle and conduct emerges from doctrine and belief. Can I get an amen? Secondly, I said the word beseech. Beseech is an important word. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. I beseech you. And the word beseech indicates that God is urging us in love to live for his glory. He is urging us to let what he has done for us affect the way that we walk and the way that we live our lives. And God has given us a calling. He has put it into our spirit that we would be called to work for and serve Christ. And it's our responsibility to live up to that calling. Amen? So, as I told you before, the first 16 verses of chapter 4 that we're looking at tonight, the main theme is the unity of believers in Christ Jesus. And the idea is that we're not fighting to obtain unity in christ unity in christ is already a reality and we are instructed in the word of god to fight in order to guard to protect and preserve the unity let me get that say that to you again because something's happening that sounds weird (laughs) i think it got our attention the theme of chapter verses 1 through 16 is our unity in christ as the body of christ and the point is Uh, The point is not that we fight to obtain unity, but that we fight to guard and protect our unity in Christ Jesus. The oneness of us in Jesus Christ, as as we read in chapter 3, is already a spiritual reality. Our responsibility is to guard and protect and and preserve that unity. Let's read verses 1 through 3. One again, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, and here are some spiritual graces. That should be emerging or becoming visible from your life as you are walking worthy of this vocation. He names seven things that should become visible or seven graces that emerge. First of all, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, endeavoring, unity, and peace. These are seven things that should characterize someone who is walking worthy of the vocation in, of which we were called. We are to be unified and uh, in one together. Now let's look here. 
In order to preserve the unity of the Spirit, we must possess these graces, these seven graces that are mentioned here. But I want to just not take a lot of time with each of them. But first of all is lowliness or humility. Humility means putting Jesus Christ first, other people second, and yourself third. That's what humility is. Think about that for a minute. Humility, putting the Lord first, others second, and self last. Humility means knowing who we are, knowing ourselves, accepting ourselves, and being ourselves to the glory of God. Some people think, well, humility means just thinking that you're you're uh, nothing and you have nothing to offer and you're just weak and, and worthless and valueless. That's not what humility is. Humility is understanding, accepting, realizing, and embracing who you are in Christ Jesus. The Lord says one should think more highly than he ought, but he also doesn't want us to think more low of ourselves than we ought. So humility is understanding who we are in Christ Jesus. The next thing is meekness. Meekness. Some people um, hear the word meek and they think weak. Jesus was described as meek. But meek does not mean weak. Let me explain to you what meekness is. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. This is what should characterize a child of God who's fighting to maintain the unity that there is power but it's under control Moses was referred to as the meekest man the meekest man but we know that he was a very powerful individual with a great deal of influence Jesus Christ was meek and lowly in heart but he was the same one that took the whip and drove the money changers out of the temple so the word meek does not mean weak. It means powerful but under control. And, and uh, if you looked at it in the Greek language, the word that they use that we translate meekness is the same word that they would use to describe. Listen to this. This will help you understand. A soothing medicine or a colt or a horse that has been broken or a soft wind. In each case... There's power, but the power has been brought under control. The power is controlled, and this is what meekness is. And then, of course, after uh, meekness, it says long-suffering, which means being long-tempered, the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. Everybody's saying, mm, 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 mm. I know human nature because I are one. And I know when somebody says something against you, criticizes you, uh, opposes you, tries to turn people against you, it's human nature to want to set the record straight. And while you're setting the record straight, just give them a little lump on their head. You know what I'm talking about. That's human. Anybody got human nature like me? The Bible says one of the Christian graces that's developing in those that are endeavoring to maintain Christian unity is long-suffering which means being long-tempered, enduring discomfort without fighting back. Recently, I uh, spoke to my dad, and I was uh, um, in a state of mind where I felt like somebody had, and it's nobody in the church, no, nobody in the church is so you understand it, but I felt like somebody was misrepresenting me, and uh, somebody was uh, 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 
you know, in effect, uh, saying things about me to turn people against me. And I wanted to set it right because that wasn't what I was doing and so forth. And my dad said, don't worry about it. Let God fight your battles. And I got to thinking about it. I was like, that makes perfect sense. Because if I start getting in there and getting my hands dirty, then uh, uh, then I, I take the job away from God. Amen. Praise the Lord. And then forbearance. And uh, forbearing means uh, being willing to endure things because you love, because of love, love being at the center of it. So forbearing one another in love. And then number three, endeavoring. Endeavoring is a powerful word, endeavoring. I want Christians to be endeavoring. I want them to be striving. It means to be eager to maintain or to guard the unity of the spirit, be endeavoring to maintain this unity, striving, working, hoping, endeavoring to maintain this unity. And uh, I heard somebody say this to, uh, uh, or heard, heard about this being said to a newly wedded couple. It's great that you're in love with each other. However, if you're going to be happy in marriage, you've got to work at it. It's great that you love your brothers and sisters. And it's great that you love your church. But in order to remain happy in serving God, you've got to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. Amen. We must constantly be endeavoring to maintain this unity. It's it's about being proactive. Amen. Hallelujah. In fact, sometimes when we think the situation is best, that's when Satan wants to come in and wreck it. But spiritual unity of a home or a Sunday school class or a youth group or a church is the responsibility of every person involved and the job never ends. It's not like, hey, we're all happy with each other. We've got unity. Let's just put it on cruise control and do our thing. And, and that's never going to change. It's, it's fluid. And so as Christians, as believers from pastor to spiritual leaders to uh, members of the body of Christ to new converts, new Christians, we need to all understand that in order for a church to maintain a spirit of unity, everybody has to be working at it. Amen? Everybody has to be willing to put effort into it. If you've been married very long, you realize, you understand that in order to stay happy in marriage, you got to be willing to work at it. Right? Because, remember, we, we talked about this and in, in, we talked about marriage some time ago, is the love bank is always open. There's deposits and withdrawals happening. And so you have to be intentional. And the same is true in the body of Christ. We've got to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the final grace is peace. Peace. If a believer, first of all, cannot get along with God, then he cannot get along with other believers. All right? Verse number four. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Anybody uh, see the word one occasionally there? It's like it's like a jackhammer. It's like a sledgehammer. One, 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 one. And so the foundation of unity here is in this passage of Scripture. 
And uh, some people today would say that our efforts to unite Christians together in a, in a body of believers is not biblical. And uh, they say we're not interested in doctrines and, and, and churches, but we're interested in love. Let's forget doctrine and just love one another. But the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul discussed doctrine, and then he discussed spiritual unity. He waited until he had laid the doctrinal foundation before he started talking about unity. This is something subtle but important for you to catch. He didn't talk about unity and then throw in, by the way, doctrine. He established the foundation of doctrine in the first three chapters. Then he began to talk about unity. After the doctrine is understood, embraced, and accepted, now let's talk about unity. You don't have unity outside of doctrine. You don't have unity until doctrine is established because unity that's built on anything other than the truth of the Bible is standing on a very shaky foundation. But once you have the mutually agreed upon biblical doctrine and biblical teaching, now let's talk about unity. Now it's time. Chapter number four, we've got three chapters of doctrine established. Now let's talk about our duty, our duty of maintaining unity. So first of all, there is one body. There is one body. This, of course, is referring to the body of Christ. And there is but one body. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And, uh, and of course, this is referring to the universal body of Christ, the church that believes the true word of God and has accepted his truth and doctrine. And this same model of the overall body of Christ and the arms and the legs, the hands and the feet and the voice and the various members of the body is also the model that's, that's embraced in the local assembly and local assemblies throughout the world. And uh, the fact that somebody is a member say this, well, I'm a member of the body of Christ. Universal, God's invisible universal church. Because you're a member of the body of Christ doesn't excuse you from belonging to a local body or a local church. You can't just say, well, I'm part of the body of Christ. You need to be a part of a local church or a local body as well. For it's within the local church, in the body of Christ on a local basis, that he exercises his spiritual gifts and that we help one another to grow. That doesn't happen in the universal body as much. That's designed to happen in the local body. Right, 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 right. You can't grow spiritually. You can't exercise your spiritual gifts if you're just out there floating around somewhere as a Christian at large. But your spiritual gifts begin to be exercised when you come into a body, when you embrace that body, when you embrace the, the uh, uh, spiritual authority and the position, and God can begin to operate through you and help to build up the body of Christ. Also, uh, with one body, there is one spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit that dwells in each and every one of us. Hallelujah. And even as you are called in one hope of your calling, and our hope is the soon coming and the soon return of Jesus Christ to take home his church. Amen? One Lord, and this is our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. It doesn't need any further explanation. One faith. There is one settled body of truth that has been deposited by Jesus Christ into his church. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about one faith. It's not talking about um, faith in terms of just like uh, believing God, but it is the 
settled body of truth. This is called the faith, and Jude calls it the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. There is one faith, and the early Christians recognized that there is a basic body of doctrine that they taught, that they guarded, that they committed to other people and passed on to the next generation. This was the faith that Paul talked about. I have kept faith. There's one faith and one baptism. One baptism. Now, once again, we're talking, Paul is talking about here the corporate body of Christ, not an individual. He's talking about as the corporate body, we there's one body, one spirit. We're called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And since Paul here is discussing the one body, this one baptism he's referring to is most likely the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The body has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And uh, that act of the Spirit, when he places the believing sinner into the body of Christ, when they uh, are filled with God's Spirit. Um, As far as the one body is concerned, there is one baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. But as far as a member of the body, you and I, the Bible indicates we've got to be baptized in water and in the Spirit. Amen? But for the body's sake, there is this body's been baptized in God's Spirit. As a body, you know, as a, as a conglomerate, we haven't universally been baptized together in a big tank. But individually, you're baptized in water and spirit. But as the body, we've been baptized by the one baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. One God and Father. And Paul likes to emphasize God as the Father because we are his children. We're in the same family. This emphasizes once again the unity of being in the same family and loving and serving the same Father. And so as a result of that, we ought to be able to walk together in unity. We all have this one Father. Praise the Lord. Paul is concerned that Christians would break the unity of the Spirit by agreeing with false doctrine. And, of course, uh, other apostles and writers of Scripture echo this warning. And uh, and uh, so the, the important thing is maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Let's read verse 7. The gifts of Christ. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things and gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. These were the gifts that God gave to the church in order for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What all Christians have in common and the way that Christians differ from each other is what Paul focuses on. He's discussing variety and individuality in terms of the gifts of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. God has given every believer at least one spiritual gift, and this gift is to be used to unify the body and to edify or build up the body of Christ. And so each believer has at least one spiritual gift, no matter 
no matter what natural abilities you or I may possess, if you're a believer and you're spirit-filled, you have a spiritual gift. And this is a God-given ability to serve God and to serve other Christians in a way that Christ is glorified and other believers are built up in strength. You want to know what a spiritual gift is? It brings glory to God. It builds up the believers. Amen? So how does the believer discover and develop those spiritual gifts? Here's the key. Your spiritual gifts begin to operate by fellowshipping with other Christians in the local assembly. The gifts of the Spirit are not toys. And the gifts of the Spirit are tools to help build up the body of Christ. And if these tools are not used in love, they can become weapons to fight with, right? And uh, so spiritual gifts operate in the of together Christ. And uh, Christians are not to live in isolation because we're members of the body. And if we're in isolation, spiritual gifts don't operate in isolation. They operate in community and in fellowship with one another. Amen? And the Bible says here that the Lord is the one that gave these spiritual gifts through the Holy Spirit. In verses 8 through 10, he ascended to the heaven. He descended to the deep, led captivity captive, and ascended to the heaven. And the picture here is a military conqueror leading his captives and sharing spoil with his followers. He led captivity captive. He liberated us from Satan. Amen. And then the spoils that he received, he gave to his followers. But the thing is, his captives do not remain captives in a sense of being prisoners of war, but they become his followers. Amen. So there, when we talk about spiritual gifts, the gifts that God gives, there are different lists in the Bible of the spiritual gift. Uh, you know, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongue, interpretation of tongue, the gift of... Uh, uh, discerning spirits, and so on and so forth. There are three different lists. One of those lists is in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. This is the most well-known of the list, the nine spiritual gifts, the knowing gifts, the speaking gifts, and the doing gifts. Let me see if I can remember them before you write up the top of the head. This list, Corinthians number one, the knowing gifts are gift of discernment, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Speaking gift. Uh, speaking gift is the gift of prophecy, uh, the gift of tongues, gift of interpretation of tongues. The doing gifts is a gift of healing, working of miracles, and the gift of faith. These are the nine spiritual gifts that are mentioned there in First Corinthians. But there are two other lists. The other one is in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And then these spiritual gifts that were given to the church are mentioned in chapter 4, verse 11. The five gifts, or some classify them as four gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then pastor-teacher as a hybrid gift, like the same person. And and the reason they believe that is because, if you'll notice there, in verse number 11, it says, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, but it doesn't say, and some teachers as some pastors and teachers. And so the gr- grammatical construct here is the idea that pastors and teachers or shepherds and teachers is the same uh, calling 
a dual gifting to the same calling. That's the idea that many people, why many people classify four spiritual gifts there in chapter 4 and verse 11. But uh, uh, in this particular passage, when it talks about the gifts that God has given to the church to maintain the unity of the spirit, it's oft referred as the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Fivefold ministry. Can you say that one? Say apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are gifts. But rather than just them being spiritual gifts, they are spiritually gifted individuals that God gives to the church to establish the foundation of the church and to help the church be built up and to grow and to maintain the unity of the spirit and to equip God's people for works of service. God puts these gifted individuals, not gifted in terms of natural talent, natural ability, but gifted with a calling and a spiritual empowerment to do this. So first of all is apostles in chapter 11. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. The word apostle means one who is sent with a commission. One who is sent with a commission. That we're in right now? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 11. Apostles. One who is sent with a commission. If you want to know what an apostle means, somebody who is sent with a commission. See, but... The, the term apostle was a was a very important term in uh, uh, the New Testament church because while Jesus had many disciples and many many followers, he specified and named and and clarified that these twelve are the apostles. A disciple is a follower or a leaner, but or a learner, but an apostle is a divinely appointed representative. And the Bible says also. That the church was built on the foundation of what? Two things. Of the apostles and prophets. This is the foundation. The church was laid by apostles and prophets. And so one thing that uh, it's need to be careful of is to refer to yourself as an apostle. Uh, because in a sense, all of us are apostles. We are commissioned with a... Uh, we are one who is sent or commissioned. But uh, in, a, in a biblical sense, the word apostle means the one who laid the foundation of the church. Same with prophets. So while uh, um, I believe that God can appoint men to go and exercise the uh, gifting of the apostle over a certain area, uh, that they should not refer to themselves themselves as an apostle and no apostles from the strict biblical sense are even in the church today because the apostles were the ones that laid the foundation of the church and the foundation is already laid. The foundation, Ephesians 2.20 says, the foundation of the church laid by the apostles and the prophets. But in a broader sense, all of us have a, an apostolic ministry, have an apostleship. The Father hath sent me, and now I send you, the apostle Paul said. So, uh, um, but uh, it's not it's not uh, very smart to claim to be an apostle. <laughs> Somebody else wants to call you that, that's one thing. But uh, to claim yourself as an apostle is, is a complete other thing. Uh, prophets. Now, the Bible talks about the gift of prophecy and then prophets. And there's variation of viewpoints on this, uh, but that there are prophets benefiting the church. I personally believe that this is a gift that still operates 
that there are men of God who have been commissioned and gifted with this uh, gifting to be a prophet to the church. And we often associate the word prophet with somebody who predicts future events, somebody who's able to uh, tell the future. But in, in Bible times, in, in the times of the New Testament church, while it was being written, that wasn't really what the person was doing. A, a prophet was not necessarily somebody who could say, three weeks from now, it's going to be a great storm. You better be prayed up. Ground's going to shake with a fervent shaking. A New Testament prophet was one who proclaimed the word of God. One who proclaimed the word of God. And uh, they were uh, prophecy in when First uh, Corinthians thirteen two when it talks about prophecy, it says uh, it says if I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all mysteries. And all knowledge. That's what prophecy is. Understanding all mysteries and all knowledge and being able to declare it. So the gift of the prophet in this sense was very important because what's the difference between the church and the book of Acts? What's one of the biggest difference between the New Testament church and Bible times and our church today? I'm going to see if anybody can get this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be really impressed. There, there is, there is a difference and we'll talk about what's the difference. That's true. The apostles have passed away. Apostles aren't living anymore. But there's another difference. Let me say it this way. We have something that the early church did not have. They had the Holy Spirit as well. But, but, point right there. We have the completed canon of Scripture that they did not have. And so, how did they know how to live, what God's plan was, how to operate as a New Testament Christian. How do we know? Get out the epistles. This is how I grow as a Christian. This is how I thrive. This is how I become. This is how I understand the mystery of Christ. How could you understand the mystery of Christ if you did not have one single gospel? You just heard a few stories. If you couldn't understand, get, get, get and read what, so they didn't have, they didn't have the Bible, it wasn't canonized. And so there were men of God that spoke for God during this era because of the incompletion of Scripture. Now, while the gift of prophecy still operates, I believe, within the church, it's a little different now because it must be filtered through and measured by the Word of God. Amen? Because the Word of God is, at this point, established. And so the gift of prophecy was an understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge and the purpose was edification, encouragement, and consoling the church. And once again, the prophet had a foundational ministry in the church. I would say that the Apostle Paul was an apostle and a prophet because we read today his revelation of all the mysteries and knowledge of Jesus Christ that had been given to him, not just in a sense of, uh, oh, I got a great revelation. No, it was God-breathed and God-inspired and became holy scripture so the prophets as well as the apostles had a foundational ministry and so the church is built on this foundation of what the prophets taught and wrote and what the apostles taught and wrote that's why we can't deviate from the doctrine of the apostles from what they taught and the way they taught people to get into the church that's why the message of acts 238 is so very important because this was the way they entered the body of christ in the new testament church and if we 
come up with a different plan, then we've deviated from the foundation. We've got to stay on the foundation. So the next one, we've got apostles, prophets, and then evangelists. The word evangelist means a bearer of good news, somebody who is bringing good news. And more specifically, uh, men that travel from place to place to preach the gospel and win the law. They have a traveling vagabond ministry, if you would, and they go from place to place preaching the gospel and with a unique ability to win the lost. And while all Christians and ministers should do the work of an evangelist, that does not mean that we are all evangelists in terms of a calling. And uh, uh, the apostles and the prophets were what laid the foundation of the church, and the evangelists are built up on the foundation of the church by reaching people and bringing the lost to Jesus Christ. Amen? So uh, there are people today who have the gift of evangelism. And they may not go get a trailer and hitch up and drive around the country, but they are gifted in leading people to Jesus Christ. But if you do not possess the gift of evangelism, it does not excuse you from being burdened for lost souls or for witnessing to them. Just have to understand that some people are more gifted than others, but all of us are called to reach the lost. Some people have the gift of evangelism. And then, of course, uh, pastors and teachers. This is the final gift that God gave the church to build it up, to edify it, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Pastors and teachers, and once again, because the word some is not repeated, many believe that there are one office with two ministries here. Pastor simply means Shepherd. Everybody say shepherd. That's exactly what it means. Nothing but shepherd. Uh, in, in the uh, in King James Version, King James English, now today doesn't so it probably should say shepherd if it's to translate modern language. Shepherd. Shepherd. The word shepherd, pastor means shepherd, indicating that the local church body is like a flock of sheep. Like a flock of sheep or a flock of lambs. And it is the responsibility of the pastor to feed and lead. Everybody say feed and lead. Feed and lead the flock. That's what the pastor the, the pastor did. That's what the shepherd did. Feed and lead the flock. In another place it refers to the word elder. It's pastor. It's the same, the same responsibility, the same calling, elder or pastor. And uh, how does a how does a shepherd or a pastor in the kingdom of God feed the people of God, and lead the people of God. It's very simple. He does it by the word of God. This is what the pastor teacher uses to feed God's people spiritually and to lead God's people spiritually and leading them even in some physical endeavors as well that have spiritual implications. So it is the word of God that is the staff that guides and disciplines the sheep. It is the word of God that the pastor or shepherd uses to feed and lead and to give guidance and discipline. The word of God is our protection and it is our provision as well. And uh, there is no amount of entertainment or good fellowship or activities or any other religious substitutes that can take the place of the word of God. That's why it's important for you to be here on Wednesday night for Bible study, right? There's no substitute for the Word of God. You know what's happening? You're you're getting some meat tonight. 
It says meat. You're growing as a Christian. You're understanding more of the Word of God. You're being built up and you're being fortified by the teaching of the Word of the Lord because this is where you get guided. This is where you get fed. This is where you get nourished from the Word of the Lord. And as pastor, my responsibility is to feed you and lead you from the Word of God and get you to become self-feeders as well in the Word of the Lord and encourage you to grow and thrive and sidestep danger based on uh, obedience and following the word of the Lord. All right. Verse number 12. What was the purpose? The purpose of these, this fivefold ministry, verse 12 was for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Big controversy here. Not not a controversy, but it's pretty much universally agreed. Don't get nervous when I say this. But most people believe there was a mistake in the translation here. The mistake was this second comma. Actually, the first comma does not appear in the Greek yet. Missionaries, missionaries uh, um, would have the, I, I would assume the gift of evangelism, pastor and teacher, but the idea of missionary is going to a different culture. Missionaries are pastors. Yeah, when when they go when they get there, they uh, uh, establish a work, but then they have to help those people grow. They have to feed and lead them as well. But the the term missionary basically means going outside of your culture, outside of your comfort zone, outside of your culture to take the gospel to another culture. Uh, and then once again, you function in the same uh, the same ministry as a pastor and teacher for, for those people. Does that answer? All right. Um, that, that comma right there, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Because every other translation that you read, because... The reason it makes a difference is because when you look at the comma there, it looks like the fivefold ministry, the pastors and teachers, are to do perfecting of the saints, and they are to do the work of the ministry. But that's not what it means. It means that the fivefold ministry is to perfect the saints to do the work of the ministry. Do you see the difference there? And some people believe, well, the pa- you know the, the the pastor and the evangelist and the apostle they're 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 better. And, and uh, the, the teacher, the, he, he's better. So he is to equip us and he is to do the work of the ministry. But what that creates is a bottleneck. Anybody heard of a bottleneck before? You turn the bottle over and only so much of the coat can come out because there's a, a narrowing there that slows the flow. And the, the ministry, the ministry should not bottleneck. Amen? And the only way the ministry cannot bottleneck is if we understand that every member of the church is a minister. Every member is a minister. And so the pastors and the teachers are to equip us to do the ministry, not to do the ministry for the church. That's where um, uh, kind of the uh, twisted ecclesiastical mentality of um, uh, the universal or the Catholic church was basically we as the members, we're going to pay this one person to do all the ministry. And this priest or pastor or or uh, parson overseer 
we'll do all the ministry and we'll take care of, uh, uh, of, of providing him to do that. And that's not what God's will is. And it creates one person who can only be in one place at one time. And if that's the only one dispensing ministry and service and, and Christ's character and blessing, then the church is not going to impact very many people. But the scriptural understanding is the fivefold ministry is there to equip every person so that they can be built up and strong and they can do the work of the ministry, right? And that doesn't mean the pastor doesn't do work of ministry. Obviously, he's a member of the body of Christ as well. But that doesn't mean that his work of ministry is more important than anybody else's work of ministry because there's people that you can touch that I can't touch. And if I'm the only one that can minister, then that person that you can touch will never get ministered to. But if we understand that the pastors and the teachers are the administers and the people, the body of Christ, the members of the body of Christ are the ministers, then guess what? That takes out the bottleneck and lets the blessing and the anointing and the ministry flow through the church, through every member of the body of Christ. Amen? So um, Paul was looking at the church to grow until it reached spiritual maturity and then for the members of the body of Christ to minister to each other, to grow together and experience spiritual unity. Let's read verse 12 through 16. The apostles, the fivefold ministry is in place for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait, lie in wait to de- wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And so, first of all, there is a growth to spiritual maturity, but then the local church and a local body of believers ministering to each other, growing together and experiencing spiritual unity. Amen. So these fivefold ministry, these leaders of the church, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers, apostles, are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. They are to build up the body of Christ. And so the saints don't call a pastor and pay him to do the ministry work, but they call him and they follow his leadership as he is equipping them to do the job. Amen? And so the members of the church grow by feeding on the word and by ministering to each other. This is how we grow spiritually. We feed on the word and we minister to each other. If I take everything I've said, if you want to just block it out, listen to what I'm saying. How do I grow as a I grow as a Christian by feeding on the word and by ministering to other people, by serving other people. That's what it takes to grow spiritually. Feeding on the word and ministering to each other. You can't do just one, you can't do just the other. It's a twofold. They come together and begin to grow spiritually. 
when you feed on the word and when you minister to each other. Amen. And the first evidence of spiritual growth is you become more like Jesus, more like Jesus Christ. The first evidence is that you become like Christ. Where is that? Verse 13. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a sign, evidence of spiritual growth or spiritual maturity, that you become more like Jesus Christ. Verse 14 tells us what the next sign is. We're we're henceforth no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. So the second evidence of spiritual maturing and growth is stability. And the maturing Christian is not tossed about by every religious idea or new thing or novelty that comes along. And uh, then the next evidence is... uh, that we speak the truth in love and we grow up into him in all things that we're joined together. The third evidence is that we're joined together with love. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. And we learn to speak the truth in love. The truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Little children don't know how to blend truth and love say they're they're mutual in their mind maturity is sign of being able to speak the truth in love amen little children think if you love someone you got to shield them from the truth if knowing the truth will hurt him but a mark of maturity is when we're able to share the truth with our fellow christians and do it in love anybody understand that your friend is not the one that tells you what you want to hear but your friend is the one that tells you the truth in love verse 16 the final evidence of maturity is cooperation the whole body joined together compacted joined together and compacted understanding that as a body of christ we belong to each other we affect each other and we need one another and every believer has a ministry to other believers even those that may appear from the outside, from the carnal perspective, to be insufficient or insignificant is the word I was looking for. They have a ministry to other believers. And the body of Christ grows as the individual members grow, and they grow as they feed on the word and minister to each other. Feed on the word and minister to each other. This is how the body of Christ and the church grows, as we feed on the word and as we minister to each other amen and the emphasis here is that it is done in love we forbear one another in love we speak the truth in love we edify the the body of christ is edified in love love is the circulatory system or the blood system of the body of christ and it's been proven that if you take a baby isolate it take it out of a family that it will not grow properly and they're especially susceptible to disease But babies that are loved and handled and touched grow normally and are stronger. And the same is true with the body of Christ. An isolated Christian without any friendships, with no relationships, with no connections in the body of Christ, cannot grow spiritually, cannot thrive, are susceptible to disease and have problems, and it's impossible for the gifts to be ministered either way. They can't minister to or be ministered to. 
They can't minister to someone else and nobody can minister to them if they're in isolation. They're not going to grow. This is why community is so important in the body of Christ. It's not just coming to church and sitting in a pew and staring at the preacher and saying amen. It's about having godly relationships with people, allowing them to minister to you, you ministering to them. This is how you grow spiritually. You feed on the word and minister to one another. That's why it's dangerous when somebody pulls away. Somebody, maybe they got offended or they got upset or, or for whatever reason, they pull away from the body. You can't grow there any more than you can cut your hand off and expect it to continue to thrive disconnected from the body. Because there's got to be the mutuality, the uh, fitly joined together. I minister to you, you minister to me. My heart is ministering to my hand by pumping life-sustaining blood and taking uh, taking nourishment, oxygen, and removing uh, poisons through the pumping of my heart. And uh, then my hand ministers to the to to the rest of my body by putting food into my mouth and other ways. And so there is mutual ministry of the body. When the body is connected together, an isolated Christian cannot minister or be ministered to, and the gifts cannot flow. So spiritual unity is a reality. When, you be, when you're born again, you're a part of the body of Christ, it is there. You don't have to force it, you don't have to make it, you don't have to create it. It's there. But God is calling us to guard it, and to protect it, and to value it, and to understand that we're fitly joined together and God's put the leaders in the church to help maintain the unity to help build us up to help fortify the church to strengthen us for works of ministry not just outside the church but to minister to one another minister to one another and I love it as pastor one of the greatest things that I've seen in the five five so years that we've been here is I am so thrilled to see a growing number of people who are concerned about ministering to other people and realize that it's not my responsibility as pastor to be the one that if somebody's in need to go pray for them, to love them, to minister to them in the altar. And there have been times at Life Church, and there will be times again, when we'll have an altar full of 20 people that need the Holy Ghost, full of 30 people that need ministering to. And it's so awesome to see a growing number of people who realize this is my responsibility to minister to the body. And this is how I grow spiritually. Part of my growing spiritually is by ministering to one another. So spiritual unity is something we already have in Christ, but we protect and maintain it. And uh, let us equip one another and edify one another so that we can grow up to be more like Jesus Christ. Everybody said amen. All right. Next week, we're going to begin in verse 17 about putting on the new man. And we're going to talk about our purity, our holiness in Jesus.